Galloway, who's also a, a young starter. He was very young when he started in Scottish politics. He was 13 when he joined the Labour Party. Like so many young socialists, he was inspired by Che Guevara. Young George quickly rose through the ranks to become the Scottish Labour Party's youngest ever chairman. His political voice came from the left for the ordinary worker. But it was a trip to Beirut in the 1970s that broadened, broadened his focus to the plight of the Palestinians, forced from their land and transformed into a refugee nation of disparate parts. His embrace of the Palestinian and the wider Arab cause put him on a collision course with the establishment. George Galloway has spent a lifetime seeking to overturn conventional attitudes and that has inevitably earned him the label controversial. With the Labour Party and without the Labour Party, George Galloway has served as a Member of Parliament for the best part of 30 years. His opposition to the Iraq war has been well documented, as has his constant advocacy for the rights of Palestinians. Now a broadcaster and a writer, and as ever, an iconoclast. Let's welcome to the podium George Galloway. Madam Chair, thank you for that lovely uh, introduction. I hope someone wrote it down and uh, we can circulate it <laughs> to my uh, future meetings. Thank you for the opportunity of appearing on this distinguished platform. As Mr. Churchill said once, forgive me if I make a long speech, I didn't have time to prepare a short one. <laughs> In fact, I haven't had time to prepare one at all. So I have no idea what I'm going to say, especially in such distinguished academic company. I must, as a health warning, say I am not myself an academic. I left school at the age of 16 and went to work in the Michelin Tire Factory in Dundee. Probably the only thing I can do that my fellow speakers cannot is I can make a ZX radial tire <laughs> and change one if it bursts. The meaning of this debate I pondered over long and hard. Here's my definition. Well, it's really Kant and Marx's definition. That theory without practice is empty, but practice without theory is blind. And that dichotomy plays out sometimes in real life. There are all kinds of desiccated philosophy professors toiling over their words but never leaving their studies and their theory is therefore empty. On the other hand, there are all kind of advocates of what we on my part of the left at least call voluntarism it's often practiced by that odd hybrid of libertarianism and anarchism, two sides of the same coin, which is essentially eruptions of activity with no theory to guide them and no movement to be a part of. If the first speech was about the future and a dystopian one, it was, Professor, 
And the last speech was about the past and an enchanting one. It was, Professor, I want to principally talk about now. But I must say, I will go to my grave very happy indeed to be enshrined in this magnificent piece of iconography that the Holberg debate has produced because the very first mass demonstration that I attended was in 1968 when I was 14 years old. I traveled overnight from the Scottish city of Dundee on a coach. Well, they called it a coach. It was a broken down bus which broke down twice on the way to London. But it was an iconic event. The Grosvenor Square demonstration in London in 1968 of 100,000 people, then a record for a left-wing demonstration, was quite something I can tell you. And it was a part of eruptions, rebellions, revolts, risings all over the world at the carnage, savagery of the American imperialist war on the people of Vietnam. So long before I was known as one of the leaders of a demonstration 25 times the size of that one, in the movement against the war in Iraq, long before even my dedication to the Palestinian cause, it was the cause of the fighting heroic people of Vietnam that captured my heart and the heart of so many. But we were not just rising as the anvil the Vietnamese people themselves being the hammer to break the American war in Vietnam, we were rising up against the system that seemed, and my goodness, the last half century has not dissuaded us from that, to require endless war and exploitation of other peoples and other people's countries in order to preserve the hegemony of the rich and powerful in the rich and powerful countries. We were rising up because we believed then that the old order was dying, that the new was struggling to be born, and that we were in the time of monsters. And we were. And we are still in the time of monsters. It's a long time, 50 years, in one person's life. It's not so long in historical terms. And I don't believe that those times are qualitatively different from the times in which we are living today. The monsters' faces have changed. In the case of Donald Trump, their IQ has no doubt diminished. I mean, Richard Nixon was the devil, but he was the devil with a degree. He was the devil with an IQ. 
But that is my reason, forgive me, Professor, for saying I think you were too pessimistic because the monsters are less than they were and the victims of the monsters are as good as the Vietnamese people ever were and are now in their multitudes everywhere. I was heavily involved in the struggle to defend Iraq from British and American imperial conquest and occupation. But what drove the Americans and the British out of Iraq was the resistance of the people of Iraq. As ill-armed as any Vietnamese fighter had been. One street, Martin, you'll know it, as an Al Jazeera presenter, one street, Haifa Street in Baghdad. It's a long street, but 244 American soldiers lost their lives there. Many hundreds more lost their blood there, wounded. And by the end, no Western soldier could set foot in Haifa Street because the Iraqi people had risen up against them and drove them from their country as I and my friends predicted that they would. The very last conversation, Martin, I had with Tony Blair, I hope it's not the last ever, I hope to speak to him again in The Hague when he's on trial for war crimes and crimes <laughs> against humanity. But the last time I spoke to him in the library corridor of the House of Commons, outside the gentleman's lavatory to be precise, <laughs> I told him that the Iraqi people will fight you with their teeth, if necessary, until they have driven you from their land. And that's what happened. And so I am not pessimistic about the long-term prospects of these monsters and for many of the reasons which the first speech laid out. Because as Marx predicted he was young too, by the way, Catherine, when he predicted it. Marx was in his 20s when he wrote the Communist Manifesto. It's hard to believe now. Not even his mid-20s. That all that is sacred will be profaned. All that is solid will melt into air. As globalized capitalism, which he foresaw builds its hegemony in the world. And that is exactly what has happened. That's why you were, and I'm shocked to hear it in a place like Norway, I'd expect it at Heathrow or Gatwick, but I'm shocked to hear what happened to you here in Bergen at the airport. I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. Because why are they guarding their borders? They're guarding their borders because beyond those borders, the victims of the imperialist system, the globalized capitalist system are massing and moving. Why are they leaving their own spaces? Because their spaces have been turned into desert literally as well as metaphorically by our economic system which 
We are the principal beneficiaries of deserts desertified by exploitation and war and environmental depredation. That's why masses, millions, one day it will be tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people are on the move. No wonder they're guarding their borders because they are afraid, as you said, afraid not just of them, but afraid of themselves because they know that we know, not they, we know, those of us from these privileged spaces know that we are rich because they are poor. In order for us to be rich, they have to be poor. Their resources, their commodities, their raw materials have to be looted by us in order that our rich societies can continually get richer. Not that, of course, everybody in our societies are rich, and that's the additional problem for our rulers. Because just as their system requires the exploitation of the other, it also requires the exploitation at home of the mass, the majority of our own people. Let me give you just one example. A man called Jeff Bezos. You've probably got a book waiting to be delivered by him right now. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. And in the time that I've been speaking, he has earned, if that's the word, at least two million pounds because he's earning, if that's the word, $124 million a day. One man. While his workforce, which is now several hundred thousand people, those in the United States are receiving food stamps from the government. So miserly are the wages that he is paying his own workers in Britain, um, where he doesn't pay any tax, I may say, to maintain the civilized country that he wants to set up his business in. None of these people pay tax. There are Footballers paying more tax than Amazon, more tax than Facebook. One individual footballer just signed a new contract which will require him to pay more tax than Amazon, the richest corporation in the world. In Britain, their workers are being subsidized by the taxpayer too. And they're very angry about it as are the workers of Amazon in the United States. In fact, the workers everywhere in the capitalist world are very angry. Now, what to do about it? I'm not a great fan of identity politics. I recognize that every one of us has our own identity, of course. Some are men, some are women, some are gay, some are straight. Some are black, some are white. 
all kinds of identities. And respect for those identities is, of course, essential. Essential for our very existence as civilized, rational humans. But the one overarching identity that we all can share, and most of us do, is our class identity, our relationship to wealth and power, to the means of production, distribution, and exchange. That's the most important identity. Of course, if all workers are oppressed, black workers are more oppressed, women are oppressed, not just as workers, but also as women, gay people, other minorities, and so on. Of course, that's true. But if we endlessly fixate on individual identities in a way that actually turns one group of the exploited against another group of the exploited, then the only beneficiary is Jeff Bezos and the other owners of the globalized capitalist system. So I don't know how vital that point is in this quite monochrome audience in a place like Norway, but for those watching online, I hope they will hear me when I say that we have to find unity in action for a profound change in how we are and where we are. I close on some points about today. I just have watched a revolting, I mean literally revolting, repugnant, repulsive, dance in Buenos Aires where a man who not literally but metaphorically in the most acute sense literally chopped up a newspaper columnist, Jamal Khashoggi, whom I knew I've touched his hand, I've kissed his cheek, I've embraced him, was literally chopped into pieces on the orders of the so-called crown prince of what they call Saudi Arabia. And he's cavorting in Buenos Aires with all the world's leaders. Some have the sense to avert their eyes as he walks by. Others not. But all of them, behind closed doors, are kissing his ass for money. It is the perfect example of the utter amorality of the system that we live in and the leaders that we elect or in some cases are thrust upon us. It is the perfect example of the moral bankruptcy of the prevailing orthodoxy 
in the world that we have. It is an example of what Marx talked about. It is that which is sacred being profaned. And why do I say that these monsters will not rule, not reign forever? Because of these inherent contradictions that you talked about so brilliantly in your exposition, the very means of scientific, digital, computational advance. Let me give you an example. When I started out at 13, Martin, in order to call you to a meeting, I had to type the notice onto a stencil. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's a skin. I had to type it. I mean type with keys hitting the skin. Then I had to put it on a drum filled with ink. Then I had to turn it. Then I had to cut it into small pieces. Then I had to go out onto the street and find you to call you to this meeting. In order to make profits, they have developed beyond, just in my lifetime, beyond all imagination, the means of communication. They did it to make profits, but they created, again, as Marx said, in 1848 that they would. They are providing the spades for their own grave diggers. They have provided us with now the means. There are people watching this in Buenos Aires because my wife's filming it. <laughs> there are people watching this in the Guguletu township where I gave some blood in your cause in the 1980s whilst underground, Ms. Cleaver, myself for the ANC in South Africa. There are people watching this everywhere. There are people in touch with you and we with them everywhere. Our army is mustering in its millions, tens of millions. And I am certain that we will prevail. Thank you very much. Thank you.